Wow, that guy means business. Just an amazing player. No, not him, the sports photographer behind him. Uh, what? He has a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where he earns 5% annual percentage yield, so he's scoring big on and off the field. You might even say he's the MVB. MVB? The most valuable business. Making your money work harder. That's how you business differently. Intuit QuickBooks. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes are in APY. APY can change at any time. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm talking to Jason Kyler for the second time in a year. He is still the CEO of Warner Media. Welcome, Jason. Thank you very much, Peter. Uh, we don't often have repeat guests in the same year, but things have changed since we last talked. Well, last time we talked, uh, AT&T owned 100% of Warner Media, and the plan was for that to continue for some time. Um, anyone listening to, to this knows things have changed. The plan is now for Warner for Warner Media to essentially be swallowed up by Discovery. Um, and then at some point, you're going to have a different job. Uh, I want to ask you about what you might do in the future, but let me just talk about what's going on in, in present tense. Um, you're CEO of a company. At some point, you won't be CEO of the company. What, what are you doing day to day? It seems like you have a, a fairly full load still. I do. I do. And I think it's, uh, it's fair to say everybody here has a very full load. And the reason why is because we have a mission that matters and we have a company that matters. I, I think it's very fair to say that we're fully subscribed. And you know, the two big, big things that we're doing is we're going direct to consumers and we're going global. And in the process, we're leaning very aggressively into the future. And I say that across news with CNN Plus. I say it across entertainment with HBO Max and also with Wait, games. You're, I asked you what you're doing. You oh. told me you're going to Europe. I am. Uh, like, yeah. So what, what are you doing day to day? So you're, oh. you're running this company, yeah. but you can't do significant long-term planning stuff because there's going to be a new person in your seat probably uh, at some point next year. So just sort of what is your day to day right now as a guy who's uh, the, the impolite way of saying is you're a lame duck CEO. So what, what do you do with your time? Well, the important thing, and this is for shareholders, is not to act like a lame duck. And so what I'm doing with my time is, you're right, I'm hopping on a plane to Europe because we're going to be launching HBO Max in a number of countries across the globe uh, in 2022. And so I'm very, very focused on that. we got a lot of work to do on that. And so uh, what I'm doing each and every day is running the company and doing that uh, a lot of hours, candidly, uh, with every bit as uh, uh, much energy that I did on day one. And I believe that's the right thing for shareholders, Peter, which is the minute you stop um, thinking about the long term, the minute you stop thinking about leading, that's when things uh, don't go in the right direction. And so we got a lot of work to do here, and I'm going to do it until the very last moment where I hand the keys over to David Zaslav. But you can't really prep your people for whatever he wants to do. He's very limited in whatever access he has to, to your executives. So you have a sort of sense of where he what he might want to do with the company, but you can't sort of tilt the company in any particular direction, right? You have to continue on as if no one's taking it over. How, how do you balance that? Now, that's, what you just said there at the end, I think, is directionally accurate, which is, and keep in mind, 
the reason why Warner Media is so coveted and in such a good position is because I'd argue that this team has made a lot of good decisions in terms of, you know, as I mentioned earlier, going direct to consumer and going global and leaning into the future. So I'm absolutely running the company and making the decisions, as is the senior leadership team, about the strategy and the direction and the operations of the business. And by the way, that, you know, if you take a look at the reception that the company's had over the last several years, um, we're making the right decisions. And so we're going to continue to do that until obviously there's a transaction uh, and that's when you hand over the keys. I had a whole cutesy intro planned for you about succession and whether Kendall was dead. <laughs> I was going to ask you last week, we're going to meet in person to speculate about that. Are, uh, do you have time to, to, to watch screeners or do you watch the show at the same time with the rest of us? So for, for the early episodes, I watch them before the, the rest of the market. Um, and then later in, in most seasons, I watch with uh, the rest of the country. And uh, But yesterday I was at CNN Heroes. Uh, we had a, uh, um, a celebration of, of, of 10 incredible uh, volunteers volunteers and, and folks that are, are, are literally making the world better. So I actually haven't seen the finale of Succession yet. So you are one episode ahead of me. I nearly spoiled it for you. All right. I don't want to spoil. Maybe you can watch it on the plane. Um, you mentioned CNN. A um, couple big changes there in the last week. They fired Chris Cuomo. They hired Chris Wallace. Does that stuff make it up to your desk? It does. It does. Okay. So were you in, did you weigh in on, on Chris Cuomo being fired? Yeah, I mean, keep in mind that CNN as an organization is run by Jeff Zucker, and that is, you know, kind of obviously the way that the company has been run and and will continue to be run. But when it comes to you know something of that materiality, um, I am you know kind of certainly in the loop, and so. But without getting into the details, uh, you know, the way that we're structured here is that Jeff is fully empowered to run CNN. But when it comes to to issues of materiality like that, of course, I'm in the loop, and and uh, you know we have discussions when there needs to be discussions. Did you guys have any difference of opinion over that move? No. Okay. Um, what kind of discussions have you had with Zaslav either prior to the deal being announced and, and since then? Um, what kind of deal, what kind of talks can you have and, and what kind of talks have you had? Well, the, the nature of the conversations are quite limited. And I'm sure if you were on this, this uh, phone call, he would say the same, uh, which is we're absolutely following the letter of the law with regards to how two companies should operate when they're in this mode, which is before uh, regulatory agencies have uh, rendered their opinion on a transaction, which means that we operate our company as a separate company. Discovery operates our company to the best of their ability as a separate company. And so the nature of the conversations are, are uh, you know, not very in-depth uh, and, and certainly not strategic because they're not allowed to be. And so there's a time and a place for that, but it's not right now. And then what in terms of your status at Warner, he's taking over your job. I'm told you were offered another job or a chance to sort of stay on and work with him. Was that of, at all of interest to you? These are all fair questions, and I certainly expected that you would ask them, but I, I'll, I'll share with you something I told the entire Warner Media team uh, earlier this year, which is that in 2022, uh, I'd absolutely kind of, you know, kind of share news about me. Um, but now is not the time, Peter, just because, you know, I want to make sure that I take time to think about, uh, you know, my, my future. But it hasn't been my focus to date because my focus has been on the team, as it should be, uh, given where we're at in the process. That's the answer I expected, but I had to ask. Um, let me ask you about some other history, though. Um, when you came into Warner Media, you had really big plans to overhaul it and big ambitious plans in terms of, of programming, other things. Um, and at some point, AT&T decided they didn't want to own Warner Media. But prior to that, it seemed like they decided they didn't want to fund it at the level they had anticipated and probably had told you. So I'm wondering what you 
what sort of things were you unable to do because of funding constraints? So that's an interesting question, just the way you framed it. Uh, so I'd like to push back a little bit on it uh-huh. uh, because when I think about uh, the period where uh, Time Warner, what is now called Warner Media, has been owned by AT and T, I, I think there's three things that uh, Warner Media has benefited from in terms of the current construct. And I just want to, you know, I think it's important for you to hear it and for others to hear it that are listening, which is. The first and probably most important thing was AT&T has provided a safe harbor of sorts, which has allowed us to actually invest far more in storytelling than we ever have as a company. And so, uh, and that that was obviously means different things for cash flow. It means different things for the budgets that the the Warner Brothers team has, that the that the HBO team has, the HBO Max team has. And I would say that um, if you take a look at the level of investment that we're doing literally this year and compare it to, say, 2016, 2015, 2014, prior to AT&T acquiring uh, WarnerMedia, um, it's markedly higher today. Right. So you're spending more than than the company had prior to the acquisition, but it's not the level of spend that you anticipated. I've talked to people who worked for you. They said you had very ambitious plans that at some point had to come back and say, we don't have the money for this. I don't know what the details were. So that's why I'm asking you. And then, and by the way, AT&T has said, we, turns out we didn't have the capacity to fund this in the way that we had anticipated. We had to spend money on, on satellite bandwidth, et cetera. So I'm trying to get a sense of sort of What's left that you didn't get to that you wanted to do but couldn't do? I think so at a high level, uh, Peter, when I just take a look at the last two years, I feel very good about the level of investment that we've done in programming. Um, Is it possible to invest more? Absolutely. So I don't want to in any way suggest that it's not possible to invest in even more with regards to storytelling. Um, But I do think that credit should be given to what has happened in twenty. 21 and in 2020 with regards to a materially stepped up level of investment in storytelling. Um, when I look at, you know, kind of the, the nature of investment, Peter, across the company, the three things that I, I think are important to highlight is clearly the entertainment side of things. So HBO Max, HBO, Warner Brothers, et cetera. Um, games, uh, which clearly there's a lot going on in that part of the business. And then finally, CNN, specifically CNN+. Plus. Those are the three areas that have had investment, and I feel really good about the level of investment. Um, I'm very bullish on the future of Warner Media, and so I do believe there's capacity for even more investment in those three things. Um, but I don't want to in any way suggest that I haven't been happy with 2020 and 2021 in terms of how much capital we were putting to work in storytelling. If you had longer runway, if you, if you were going to have this job for two or three or however many more years, um, I think you had a four-year deal initially. What 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 would be next on your agenda? You've done you've done a basic reorg and and you're you're standing up the platform and launching new shows. Um, what's next? Sure thing. Uh, so. When we started, when I started, we we weren't uh, live with HBO Max yet, and so we weren't in any markets. Uh, we're now in 46 countries with a lot more in the shoot. Uh, those countries represent, if you take a look at Netflix's uh, revenue base, over 50% of the opportunity. And so we're halfway home in terms of launching, uh, not operating necessarily in terms of being fully penetrated, but but launching in 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 a lot of uh, the world when it comes to the streaming world. Um, so there's over 190 countries uh, in this world. We're in 46. So to answer your question, continue to go global, continue to go direct to consumer. And do it across entertainment, which is HBO Max, do it across news, which is CNN Plus, and do it across games. 
And so to your question, those are the three things that, uh, you know, you know, would define the next five, 10 years, which is uh, those three things. You've been asked ad nauseum, including by people like me, about the, the decision to go day and date with uh, all the Warner Brothers uh, movies uh, streaming on HBO. You're just about at the end of that project. I think Matrix will be your last big launch. Um, what'd you learn from that year? So uh, we've learned a lot and I've been really happy with the decision. And you've heard me say that publicly before, Peter, and I say it because of the information that I get to see, uh, which is how people are responding to uh, the strategy, both in their homes in terms of streaming and their consumption and people that decide to uh, you know, come onto the service, and also in terms of what we're seeing all over the globe with regards to having theatrical releases. Um, uh, we're the only studio uh, on the planet that is given 18 major theatrical releases, uh, a global release with marketing budgets to support them. And when you combine that with the streaming window that we introduced in the US market, the day and date as you, you, you referred to, um, I'd argue it, it's mattered. It's mattered for our participants. It's mattered um, uh, for customers, and it's also been very important uh, for Warner Media. What's what's been more important for you uh, with those movies, bringing in new customers or keeping the existing ones, lowering churn? What's what's been more valuable? They're both important. I'd say for mm-hmm. an early uh, uh, business, which clearly HBO Max was, if you think about the start in May twenty seventh of uh, of two thousand twenty, uh, acquisition is the first uh, thing that I would use to answer that question. But it's it's not an either or, Peter. It turns out that once you're a subscriber, our goal is to make sure you use the service ideally on a daily basis and that we retain you in that moment of truth at the end of every month. And so it turns out that the movies have been very important, both from an acquisition so perspective, but also people a were signing up for HBO Max to watch a specific movie. Yes. Um, and you go back to not exactly like normal next year, but but closer to, to, to where things were pre-COVID. Um, so how will that change HBO's performance So if I'd you push, don't have those movies to bring them in? Yeah, I'd push back on you, Peter. So think about when movies would show up on HBO Max uh, or HBO, uh, uh, which is eight to nine months after a theatrical uh-huh. premiere. Um, the Batman's going to show up on day 46 on HBO Max. That is a huge change from where things were in 2018, 2017, 2016. So um, so to your question of what do I think about 2022 in terms of the content hand that we have and what we'll be able to do for audiences, um, I feel really, really good knowing that the Batman and Black Adam and The Flash and Elvis uh, and a whole host of other movies are literally going to be showing up on day 46 on HBO Max uh, in a variety of territories all over the world. That is a very, very big change that I don't think people appreciate. Um, and I feel really good about it. What do you think the consumer does? They've been out of the movie theaters for a couple of years, um, especially older ones. Um, they're now used to a world where there's lots and lots of streaming options. And you just said they're going to be told that they can wait a, a couple months and, and watch big budget movies at home instead of going to the theaters. Um, do you think people are being permanently trained not to go to movie theaters? I don't. I don't. And let me explain. I think it's also helpful for you to know the kinds of movies that we're going to be releasing in theaters for mm-hmm. 45 days and the kinds of movies that we're going to be producing with Warner Brothers that are going to go direct to HBO Max on day one. So you know, we're going to have over 10 movies that show up on day one, just like they did this year on HBO Max, like Father of the Bride is a great example. 
that's a certain kind of movie with a certain type of demo uh, that it attracts. The ones that are going exclusively to theaters, um, uh, nine movies, uh, those are ones that I would argue are made for IMAX. They're made for the big screen. Doesn't mean you can't enjoy them and have a great time with them in your living room. But I do think that there's lots of people, particularly a younger demo, that is going to want to go out and see those movies on a big screen. And so when you look at the Batman, Black Adam, The Flash, et cetera, these are spectacles. And, and so I don't think in any way that um, we're training the world to do one thing over another. I think that assumes way too much power that a company like uh, ours has. The reality is, is that the customer gets to make the decision in all these things. Right. No, I don't think it's you. I think it's the world, right? It's it's all all uh, every studio that's pulled their stuff and, and pushed it back. Um, and just the fact that there's a, still a global pandemic that makes people worry about going out and about. Um, I'm wondering after, after a couple of years of that training, they'll say, I, I just don't miss that experience that much. Or maybe I just go once a year or twice a year. I'd say, you know, I'm a student of media history, and I think if you take a step back and look at the trend in theatrical uh, attendance, uh, the reality is that it was changing before COVID. COVID certainly, I think, accelerated some things. So I think your comment is very fair, Peter, uh, that you know, certainly if you do it by demo, you do see a change in consumer behavior. Um, but I also think that especially when you're talking about uh, younger demos, people in their teens, people in their 20s, I actually think you're going to see, and you see them right now, uh, showing up in theaters, uh, including you know, in a situation when we're not out of the pandemic, you're still seeing some pretty nice uh, theatrical dollars being generated by movies that are targeting a certain demo, specifically the younger demo between the ages of call it 14 and 30 or 35. So I'm watching, my kids are 11 and 13 and they go to movies, they like them, but on any given date, they would much rather spend their time um, either gaming or watching YouTube video of someone gaming, which still bothers me, but they like it. So God bless. Uh, you guys are one of the few big media companies that has a gaming division. You were close to selling it. You decided to keep it. Um, why do you think in general, big media companies haven't figured out gaming yet and haven't really spent much time on it when it's at least, it's actually quite big, it's bigger than traditional uh, movies, for instance? I think it's for the same reason, Peter, that um, a lot of companies that were in retail didn't figure out e-commerce. It turns out that it's a very unique skill set. It uh, is technical in nature. It's incredibly complicated in terms of being able to pull all these things together. And you have to have conviction about it. And one of the things that I was most excited about in terms of coming into Warner Media was the gaming opportunity. And I continue to feel that level of conviction. And so uh, I, I very much am a believer in it. I believe in it for some of the reasons that you just alluded to, which is your boys are very, very big gamers, it sounds like, and they're not unique. It turns out that a lot of people, that's their first go-to choice when it comes to entertainment. And we happen to be, as you also said, uniquely positioned. We have thousands of world-class talented game developers. We have a sandbox of IP that people would kill for when it comes to creating incredible immersive worlds. And we're doing really well with it. And so I happen to be very bullish on it because the consumers are very bullish on it. So the, the Warner Brothers uh, gaming unit that you have does traditional sort of AAA games. Um, you guys haven't ventured into the sort of... Uh, 
casual games that much, as far as I can tell. You, d- you don't do that much of the, the multiplayer online stuff. Is that stuff that you're interested in? So I, I would say yes is the short answer, and, and I think you're not giving us enough credit, so I'll pull your chain a little bit, which yeah. is, so Harry Potter Magic Awakened um, is an you know incredibly successful title that we've released in the Far East, in China, Macau, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. And uh, it was the number one revenue-generating mobile game in, in China earlier this quarter. And so we're hard at work on a lot of mobile gaming, a lot of omni-platform gaming, multiplayer gaming, uh, immersive worlds. So you're absolutely right that we do have a history of AAA game titles, but we also have quite a bit of mobile games uh, in terms of uh, releasing uh, across the, the spectrum, across our studios. And we've got a lot more coming specifically in 2022. What do you make of the fact that Netflix has announced that they're getting into games? They're starting very small with with casual games, but I presume they have much bigger ambitions. Um, Epic Games, the people behind uh, Fortnite, um, have said they want to get into some kind of film production, it looks like. Um, does all this converge, or, or are there going to be companies that are really good at making games and companies that are really good at making movies and TV shows? And, and those are really different skill sets. I think it depends on who you're talking to and the history that they come from. So to use one example, which is Disney, you know, Disney clearly tried games, is not in games. They licensed their IP. Um, Netflix is doing what, what you just described, which is working with outside studios for the most part and trying to get into games. Um, this is going to sound very biased, and of course it is. But but Peter, I think it's, you know, kind of when you take a look at the, the biggest opportunity in storytelling is to pursue a strategy that we have. And let me explain what I mean by that, which is if you're going to invest a lot of upfront capital in creating beloved characters and worlds, uh, I think it's only natural if you have the capabilities and if you have the skill set in terms of leadership and talent to be able to lean into telling those stories both in a linear fashion with narrative storytelling, but also in an interactive fashion with gaming. And so we happen to have that conviction. We happen to have that skill set, both at the leadership level and at the software developer level. So we're able to do it and we're able to do it with confidence and with, with, with high judgment. Very few companies on the planet are in that position because gaming is hard, to my earlier point, and it's not for the faint of heart. So right now, you know, I've played Fortnite more than once. Uh, you guys had licensed the Batman stuff over there. You guys just did a big integration with them. You did a Matrix uh, demo. Um, are you, and you've seen, you've seen a version of this play out before where the studios hand over their IP to a tech company who then uses it to build something that ultimately comes back and, and becomes a serious rival. That's the Netflix story. Are you worried that, that you're giving, uh, potential competitors, uh, some of your best stuff? So Peter, you know me very well. I'm, I'm incredibly focused on that dynamic and, it's the reason why I'm so excited about an upcoming game we have called multi- Multiverses. And I think it's fair to say that there could have been an era of Warner Media historically where they would license their characters to be in a game, a brawler game, where somebody else you know, kind of created it and, and we got a, a paycheck for allowing our IP, our characters, to be in that other person's brawler game. Um, instead, what you're seeing us do, and you should expect to see this in terms of the strategy of the company, is we're actually building our own immersive, persistent environments where our beloved characters are in Warner Brothers games as opposed to being present in other people's games. So you have thought about this. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. 
As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. And we're back. While we're talking about weird digital stuff, um, I'm trying to get my head around Web3 and blockchain and NFTs. Um, Every day I get a ton of stupid press releases about something NFT related. I'm assuming that you guys are spending a lot of time thinking about whether or not there should be Batman NFTs, et cetera, and what you want to do with them. Um, is Is this an interesting collectible and that's kind of it? Or is there something bigger at stake for you guys? I think with regards to, you know, NFTs are one thing and Web3 is, is is something more expansive. So I'll start with just NFTs, Peter, which is I, I happen to be very, very bullish on NFTs because I think that um, it represents um, a number of things. It represents someone to express their passions. It, it, it allows someone to express uh, you know, kind of things they care deeply about. It addresses, you know, people's egos and everybody has egos. Uh, and and, and uh, it's a means of self-expression in the same way that trading cards are in the same way that a lot of other things that people collect are. So this is just the digital manifestation of it. And if mm-hmm. it's consistent with other things digital, the opportunity is probably going to be a lot larger because it's one thing to hang a painting in your living room where people have to come inside your house and see it for you know, kind of that ego boo to happen. Um, when you put it in a digital environment, suddenly the opportunities are far more uh, scaled. And so I'm very excited about what NFTs can represent for any storytelling company that happens to have beloved characters and worlds. So um, we're, it's fair to say it's early innings. Um, you know, we just sold 100,000 Matrix NFTs for $50 a piece. And um, we were very encouraged by what we saw in terms of consumer satisfaction and what we're seeing, you know, since people purchased those NFTs. So, so to answer how do, you, your- how do you think through that sort of stuff? Do you say, let's just, let's go through the, the, the catalog, everything that can be digitized, let's digitize and let's get it all up there. Or let's play it really slow because what if we were wrong about how the market's going or we're making a misstep? Um I could see either way. You could say like, if people want to spend a ton of money on 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 the equivalent of a, of a digital T-shirt. Why not let them buy it? So my my orientation and our orientation is that we want to uh, learn as much as we possibly can in terms of the consumer and the consumer interests and behavior. Um, you're absolutely right that I think it would be a mistake to uh, you know at this point in time 
put everything out there, uh, literally put every clip out there, do everything, you know, kind of that, that has ever been done in the history of uh, Warner Brothers and Warner Media um, at this point, because nobody knows. And anybody who tells you they know is, is, is not someone to be trusted. Um, so what we're doing is we're being as thoughtful as we can, as fast as we can to serve customers and learn at the same time. And if we do our jobs right, each and every week that passes, we'll get more and more aggressive and ambitious and have more confidence because, again, um, we're getting more attuned to consumer behavior and what they really want from us. And so um, so if you take a look at, you know, kind of the next several months, you'll see more and more activity from us that reflects the learning that we had from the past couple of months. So what so what will be different two months from now than than something you're doing today? So I suspect the Batman, you're going to see um, a more ambitious approach to NFTs with the Batman than you saw with the Matrix. And the Matrix was, we thought we were being pretty ambitious, but it turns out 100,000 NFTs was not ambitious enough based on the consumer demand. So um, what you should expect to see us do is is something that uh, creatively and from a strategy perspective is simply more ambitious than what you saw this month with the, with the Matrix. Who is an NFT consumer in 2021? I, I was trying to to uh, go through this experience this week. We involving getting a MetaMask account set up on my browser and my 12 keywords, and they tell you to put that in a security deposit box, and then um, you got to convert to Ethereum. It's it seems awfully daunting, and I'm reasonably technically competent. Um, are these actual consumers who are fans of the product? Are they purely speculators? Some combination. It's a combination. It, it's largely technic, uh, technically savvy males. Is, is uh, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that's what we're seeing so far. And it is a combination of people who are simply very passionate that happen to fit that profile that I just said and or people that are speculators. And so um, it, it is... Um, I think it's going to mainstream uh, because, you know, like with all early technologies, they tend to skew, you know, to the technical and technically savvy uh, of us. Um, but I do think that it's going to mainstream in the same way that e-commerce uh, is a very mainstream activity today. So at some point, I'm just clicking a button and buying a thing that I like, and I'm not worried about where the money's going and how, how it's being converted to Ethereum, and it just comes out of my credit card or whatever. It, it'll be no harder to uh, buy an NFT as it will be to one-click something at Amazon. Um, the last time I had you on, I asked you about uh, the HBO Max uh, ad-supported tier, um, and I'm curious um, what you've learned as you've rolled that out. I know when you were at Hulu, you had a, a premium tier and an ad-supported tier, and for a long time, everyone was choosing the premium one, not the ad-supported one, even though it was cheaper. Um, but it seemed like maybe the Hulu wasn't promoting that one that much. Um, what have you learned offering two different price points of HBO? Sure thing. So uh, we're really bullish on it. And let me explain why. In the early part of a market's uh, uh, evolution, um, the premium uh, it, it tends to be what most people adopt. And the premium in this case is the ad-free version of a streaming service, whether you're talking about Hulu back in 2008, 2009, as you're referring to, or uh, HBO Max in, in 2020 and 2021. Um, Today, though, uh, the majority of people that subscribe to Hulu choose the lower-priced ad-supported version, and I suspect that HBO Max will follow a very similar path. Um, and I, I say that because when you look at the the, the global opportunity for serving people uh, in terms of moving them through story, I think that advertising allows it uh, to be more affordable uh, for more people around the world. So I happen to believe that the best approach is empower consumers with choice. 
And if they want to choose an ad-free experience, that's fantastic. We have one of, we have a version of that. It's called HBO Max. And if they choose to have a lower price that's made possible by the presence of thoughtfully executed advertising, we have that too. And there's a third one, Peter, that I'm also a a very big believer in, which is free ad-supported linear uh, television over internet protocol. I think that you're going to see that dramatically rise over the next decade because, again, there's 8 billion people plus in this world. And there's a certain market for paid subscription. And I'd argue uh, there's a very large market as well in terms of number of people uh, that will choose free ad-supported as well. Explain, explain, explain the last option C in, 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 in plainer English. Are we just talking about taking what, what used to be called uh, broadcast TV and streaming it over the internet and you watch it for free? That's what we're talking about. So basically, you know, kind of a linear experience. It's available. It's live. You go to a certain destination and it's playing. And, um, and I do believe that you're going to see that continue to be um, over the next decade uh, up and to the right. And I think for those people that happen to have um, intellectual property, uh, and by that I mean beloved stories and characters and a lot of them, I think there's going to be an opportunity there in addition to and alongside paid streaming uh, subscription services. So are we living in a stratified world then where, where people who can afford to have content without ads pay for that, they don't see ads generally, and then the ads then aren't geared toward them, and then and then you've got uh, people with less income and they have to sort of suffer through advertising. Um, one, what does that experience mean for consumers? And two, for advertisers, if there's a chunk of people who are opting out of seeing ads, what do advertisers do to reach them? So I think that there's always going to be ways to reach anyone on the planet. I mean, all, all you know, just go through your normal day, Peter, because you're certainly in the top, you know, top, top uh, 5% of the world in terms of, you know, kind of your background and, and the world gets to you. And so I wouldn't worry about advertisers not being able to get in front of folks. Um, it turns out that uh, marketers are very crafty and very creative. Um, but I also think your comment that there are going to be some people on the planet that choose to have no advertising in their streaming experience. Um, I happen to think that that's going to be a minority of people around the world and greater than 50% are going to choose to have a lower priced option made possible by the presence of some advertising. Uh, that's the way I think the world's going to go. I mean, I think the only ads I see now, at least when I'm watching sort of premium television, is if I'm watching live sports. Well, I suspect, Peter, that you're probably, you probably you probably have greater than 3,000 ads presented to you on a daily basis. Um, it just happens to be not in your streaming environment because mm-hmm. it sounds like you choose ad-free. Uh, so the world's getting to Peter Kafka. It's just that it's not via your, your HBO Max subscription. Let me ask you about live sports. You, you're watching this stuff carefully. Live sports is the is sort of the linchpin of the traditional TV ecosystem. The rights keep going up and up and up in value, even the viewership keeps dropping. Um, we're waiting for a big tech company uh, to come in and, and buy a really massive sports rights package. Um, Amazon, your old employer, is the closest. They're spending like a billion dollars a year. But just to show Thursday night football, do you think a big tech company is gonna is gonna come in and, and and snatch up the rights to something really significant at some point? Well, I think it's inevitable that um, internet protocol rights uh, are clearly going to be front and center. And I say that at, because at the very highest level, 
uh, I think internet protocol is going to be the means of distribution, the dominant means of distribution for storytelling. And I say that because it's ubiquitous. Uh, any any you know, glass screen uh, that's connected to the internet is a consumption device, and there are billions and billions of them now in the world, so they're fully de- deployed and penetrated. Um, it can be personalized, uh, both in terms of the content in addition to the advertising. It's just an incredible technology. So, so it's inevitable that the internet protocol delivery rights of live sports are gonna be front and center. It's just a matter of time, it's not a matter of if. And to your question of, is it technology companies that end up uh, purchasing those rights? I think it'll be uh, uh, you know uh, anybody and everybody uh, who has conviction uh, and has a game plan that they want sports to be um, a meaningful part of their strategy of going direct to consumers and going global. So I suspect we're already seeing it, Peter, and that Amazon has bought up some rights around the world when it comes to sports. And I assume that they're going to continue to buy rights. And I wouldn't be surprised if others got in the game as well. What is the value of sports, though, to uh, whether it's a broadcaster or an internet company, if if a lot of people are saying, actually, I prefer not to watch sports, I don't value it, I'm going to find, this is increasingly happening, I'm going to find ways of, of watching television and paying for content that don't include paying for sports. So the, the sports audience uh, maybe stays the same, but it's more concentrated. Um, and the idea that you're going to you know launch, launch uh, Fox like Rupert Murdoch did by buying NFL rights, that doesn't seem like it's going to work right now. You're not going to launch a new thing. Well, instead of me lecturing you, what do you think the value of, of sports is to, to either an existing media company or someone who wants to get into it? Well, I think that um, you brought up a lot of good points in terms of the way that sports has been packaged historically, which is basically a one-size-fits-all uh, skew, uh, for lack of a better word, which is the pay TV bundle. Um, I, I, you know, I'm a believer in sports and, and I'm not unique in this statement because it turns out there's a lot of people in this world who are very passionate about sports, the live sports of it all, in addition to the lifestyle and shoulder programming, uh, that surround it. And, um, and when you think about the level of passion that people have for sports and you think about the internet protocol of it all, I think sports is absolutely going to play an important role uh, in the internet uh, going forward. Um, and by the way, I don't in any way mean to suggest that we're going to see an exodus in terms of the pay TV customer experience, because that's a good business. And by the way, it's a good business because in the U.S. market, over 73 million households choose that product for how they get news, sports, and entertainment. And so I know it's easy to just you know, kind of talk about streaming, streaming, streaming. And believe me, we are incredibly bullish and very invested in it. But 73 million households in the U.S. is more than any streaming subscriber count in the U.S. market. And yeah, so, but it's a declining number, as you know, and it's going to keep declining to some point. Where do you think that number bottoms out? I have no idea, but at 73 million, it could go down a lot and it'd still be a very important business because whether it's 73 million or some number less than that, that's a lot of households, Peter. Those are a lot of customers raising their hands and saying, I like this. And so so it's our job to serve them. And by the way, one of the things that the market oftentimes sort of assumes is that you know a pure play is the best way to go here. I, I strongly disagree with that because of the nature of this business. The nature of all these businesses, whether it's Netflix or WarnerMedia or Disney or Amazon, is that you invest a lot of capital upfront in a highly speculative way about characters and settings and worlds and stories. And then it's your obligation to serve as many customers around the world. And that includes internet protocol, of course, but it also includes coaxial fiber and satellite uh, and any other means of of, of transmission to meet the customer where they want to be met. So 
I know you're spending a ton of time day to day running a business. You got to go to Europe, but you like to speculate like we're doing now about uh, the future and where all this stuff goes. Do you think, I mean, first of all, how much more consolidation do we have over the next five years? Um, there's still a bunch of sort of smaller and mid-sized media companies that have not been acquired for some reason. Do you think they stay put or do they get swallowed up? I, I think there's going to be a lot more in the future when it comes to transactions. Um, you know, some people could take the view that the combination of uh, of Warner Warner Media, which is a you know was a hundred and eight billion dollar enterprise value when it was sold to AT and T. Uh, combining with a $12 billion market cap or $11.3 billion market cap company is not, um, not, not as material as other transactions that may be on the horizon uh, outside of us. And, and, uh, and I think that's a fair statement. I think it's the nature of digital is that um, it tends to have bigger players, but fewer players um, when it comes to, 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 to these kinds of markets, whether you're talking transportation, commerce, uh, and certainly media. And so if, if you take a look at that history and you're projected out, you have to believe that there's a fair bit more ahead when it comes to consolidation and, and transactions that, that are going to give um, certain companies enough breadth and depth to be able to serve customers in the way that they want to be served, which is across the globe with a lot of storytelling day in and day out. In the HBO book, The Oral History, Jim Miller just put out, he quotes your predecessor, Jeff Buca, saying, in 2014, basically, is him saying, it turns out that we, I, I realized at that point that we weren't going to be able to succeed on our own. We weren't big enough to succeed on our own. We were either, we were either going to have to get bigger or sell to one of the big tech companies. Would you have been surprised to hear him tell you that in 2014? Um, you know, it's interesting. I would have had a different point of view in 2014. And that here's the reason why, is that... Um, and keep in mind that I know a lot about Warner Media. I'm very biased, uh, and I have so much confidence and conviction in this team and in the 98 years of storytelling that this company has built up. So, if you take a look at what's happened in the last couple of years, um, HBO Max from went from not existing to being the number two player in the markets that we operate in, and that's on a subscriber level, that's on a revenue level. Um, that's remarkable uh, when you think about the job that this team has done. And so I would have come to a different conclusion than Jeff did in 2014. I respect the conclusion that Jeff came to, which, by the way, also includes how he thought about Wall Street and the receptiveness of Wall Street to a plan to go direct to consumer and to go global, which is expensive. It requires a lot of capital, which means that your free cash flow and your profits go from one level high to lower because you're making a bet on the future that right. and you, you can, can get over You that. can pull it off of your Netflix and you haven't had the expectation of profits for the most of your life, but it's much harder to do if you're an existing company where they do want that. It turn, it, it, you're absolutely right, Peter. I think one of the most unheralded skill sets uh, that's needed in today's world is communicating clearly and simply to the market about the journey that you're on, which is to be very, very clear that this is what we believe is going to be the best path to optimizing future free cash flow. I think that is an incredibly important skill. And in a very busy and a very noisy world, distilling it down and being able to say, we're going direct to consumer, we're going global across games, across entertainment, and across news. And we believe the size of that opportunity exceeds anything we've ever had in our history uh, from, a, from a free cash flow perspective. I think that's really important because it would be very easy, and again, in a very noisy, complicated world, to lose that 
that that that that that that narrative, um, and I think that's very very important for people to understand. And by the way, there's only a couple of companies on the planet that I think are well positioned enough to be able to get to the other side of that scale river. Um, uh, I mean, to- by the way, your boss, your current boss, John Stanky, says now in public, he says, "Yeah, we we wanted the market to reward us for this." And they didn't. Basically, investors looked at what AT&T was doing with WarnerMedia and they're basically the chance to sort of build a giant streaming operation and said, nah, well, we don't really care. Well, keep in mind, there's a hundred plus year history to the shareholder base of AT&T, which you have to respect, which is there's a certain type of shareholder of AT&T, which expects a dividend, which expects a certain type of profile uh, in terms of, uh, of what the business is. And there's no doubt that WarnerMedia is a very different business than AT&T, whether it's Spectrum or Fiber. Did you ever have I just one a couple more history questions? Did you ever have a chance when it became clear, whether it's to John Stanky or to you, that that AT and T wasn't going to be able to fund the thing the way they wanted, um, and that maybe it didn't make sense for for AT and T to own Warner Media to go out and find some other home for Warner Media? Did you ever have a chance to weigh in uh, on other options pre discovery? So I, I, I'm not going to go into that that whole you know kind of subject subject matter, other than to say that uh, keep in mind that from an investment perspective, if you just look at Warner Media and you look at the free cash flow that Warner Media has invested uh, or, or generated on its own, this has never been, the last three years have not been a, uh, or, or three and a half years, have not been a function of Warner Media using AT&T's capital to invest in the business. Didn't say they have. I'm just, I was asking whether you had a chance to, to do something else with the company other than have it be sold to Discovery. Oh, I think that it's it's fair to say, and again, this is just an academic part of the conversation, uh-huh. Peter. But uh, you know, when it comes to uh, kind of the options, uh, you know, for a Warner Media, of course, they run the gamut from IPOing and, and and being out as an independent public entity, combining with another company, um, being effectively acquired by a, another company. They run the gamut, and so, um, but but that's uh, you know, kind of that that's obviously an exercise that anybody would go through in terms of the different options. Um, one more history question. Prior to taking the Warner Media job, you had taken a job at Amazon. You you were about to start working there. Your name was in the was in the directory. Um, what was the job, and, and why did you decide not to take it? So I, you know, I've, I've I have a long history with Amazon and a very good one, and I uh, I think very highly of them. And you know that you've known me for a long, long time. And so Amazon's been you know very good about. Um, Talking to me about joining the company over the, over different times in my career, I was there for nearly you know ten years, nine years uh, to be precise, and um, uh, uh, but but you know they, they had interest in in uh, a number of things uh, that they w- would like me to do, and so uh, but I've never talked about it publicly. I'm not going to talk about it publicly here today. Man, this you was are, years you ago. Are, you are you are disciplined. Um, <laughs> that's. I think is the polite word. All right. So, so you're not going to tell me what your next job is going to be. So I won't ask you, um, do you get a break? What, what, what do you want to tell me about the future? Well, geez, I mean, you know, I, 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 I'd say one thing that you haven't asked Peter, which I think is, is going to be interesting is that I think that over the next 10 years, um, and again, I say this more of a, as a student of history and a big believer in the future is that, um, Everybody always likes to play the game of, okay, which horses are going to win and, and, and what's it going to look like, et cetera. I also think that it's very important to realize that it's also very likely that there's going to be a new entrant that doesn't exist today that will come out of left field and people won't see coming. 
And, 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 and I say that because it's happened with pretty uh, regular cadence over the last 15 to 20 years in storytelling and before then too, by the way. So, um, you know, obviously I was very fortunate to, to, along with a really talented team to be a part of that in terms of the Hulu era and the Netflix era, which both came out of left field. Um, you saw it happen uh, with TikTok here in the last several years. And I think you're going to see it again, especially in a world where you see crypto and blockchain and NFTs and fundamentally different skill sets that are in rare supply. And so, so when, when, you know, I get asked the question a lot, just like you asked earlier, which is, gosh, what does the world look like in five to 10 years in terms of storytelling and media? And I think that there's absolutely going to be dramatic changes to the chessboard in terms of the players that we know today. But I also think there's going to be the introduction of at least one, if not two other players that become incredibly material in the same way that Netflix and TikTok have become material today. And do you think they're introducing a new format or way, mode of consumption, the way that sort of Netflix pioneered with streaming, um, TikTok, I guess, is short clips? Um, or do you think it's uh, it's it's entertainment the way we're consuming it now? It's just brought to us through a different financial structure. I think so. The, the overarching answer is yes, uh, but let me explain why I agree with everything that you just said, which is that. I think the way that I always try and think about these things is what's the job to be done? And, you know, the job is to move the world through story. And if you keep it simple and you don't come at it with any historical artifacts and say, in 2021, what is the best way to move the world through story? I think you answer that with the latest and greatest technology and different formats, potentially, to your comment, um, different financing schemes. Um, there's, it turns out that in 2021, there's a lot of new and interesting ways to get that job done that were not available 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and certainly not 50 years ago. So, and that's, you know, if you, if you deconstruct TikTok, that's what they did. They basically, you know, are moving the world through story in a very different way uh, with their own format um, using technology uh, that a lot of other storytelling companies have not used. And so, so to answer your question, I'd say yes to yes to financing, yes to format, and yes to other things that have yet to be defined. Are your kids using TikTok? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I, I've yet to, to put mine onto it. They don't seem very interested, frankly. <laughs> Give them, just give them a little bit of time. I, I, I think that uh, everybody joins TikTok in time. I'm not really in a rush, to, to be honest. All right, Jason Kyler, thank you. Twice in a year, I appreciate it. Um, happy holidays, safe travels. Happy holidays. Thank you, Peter. Thanks again to Jason Kyler for zooming in for this one. And thanks again to the many folks at Vox Media who made this week's episode possible. Big, big team took a village. Um, this is Recode Media, and I'm Peter Kafka, and we've got another episode for you next week. We are not breaking for the holidays. We're giving you fresh content all the way until 2022. See you soon.